We're in chapter 5 of First Peter. I guess we ought to talk about where we want to go. We want to go on just to Second Peter and finish Peter's writings. Uh, we can do that, and then we have to figure out where to go from that point on. Uh, in uh, chapter 5, we're going to close out this letter. We might even, I, we probably won't tonight. Uh, chapter 4, verse 17, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, is how in that section right there about suffering, uh, Peter stops and says, if we're going to be judging, if we're ever going to be judging, you know, there's that sense in which we tend to try to judge the world. <laughs> we know what everybody ought to be doing at times. We forget maybe God is the judge of all people. Uh, we're called to be mercy, agents of mercy, to show and to bring mercy into the world, whether it be with believers or unbelievers. And again, if, we're, if we do judge, we must judge ourselves first. We're going to uh, bear a greater responsibility because to whom much is given, much is required. And we have been given so much as recipients of the grace of God. Uh, there's no room for us to be judgmental. And we have to, be, we have to judge. We have to discern right and wrong. And uh, we're called to judge one another in one sense but not judgmentally, not judging motives, but helping one another, encouraging one another in the faith as we see uh, responses are contrary to the word of God. But what Paul does with this idea of judgment beginning with the house of God, he also begins with the leadership in the church. So these first few verses in chapter 5, he deals, Peter deals, did I say Paul? Peter deals with uh, the eldership, the leadership in the church. Uh, let's read just the first few verses. So I exhort the, exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Uh, it seems to me that's a bad paragraph break, but we'll leave it at that. Um, these first few verses of chapter 5, uh, Peter, and then along with Paul, I have some scriptures there that I'm going to run through a few scriptures tonight uh, here uh, on this eldership. Just as we talk about our where we are at Providence, as we understand the Bible teaching about eldership, and, and what we see in chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, really, maybe, maybe down into verse 3, 
um, an admonition to us, but that the office of elder is really kind of a threefold uh, position, a threefold office. It's elder, it's pastor, and it is uh, overseer. That's the words that are used in ESV, I think, and in uh, mostly in New American. Sometimes it's bishop if you have uh, the King James or the New King James. But these three words that where elder seems to be the position, um, then uh, the shepherd or the pastor is the, the idea of feeding the flock, teaching the flock the word of God, and then the overseer being the one who is, in, the word is kind of a supervisor, a superintendent, kind of overseeing the life of the church. Here in First Peter, we have all three of those ideas in this one passage. So I exhort, verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed, to shepherd the flock of God. There's your word pastor, that shepherd the flock. The verb to shepherd is to pastor. Uh, the noun only shows up as pastor, I think, once, yeah, once in the New Testament in our English Bibles, uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, uh, pastor teachers, but to shepherd the flock. So the elders, as a fellow elder, he's encouraging the elders to pastor the flock of God that is among you, and then exercising oversight is the verb of being an overseer. It's the, it's, if you were King James, bishoping. It's the idea of uh, overseeing the flock as you teach them you're responsible for them as elders, and the elder is just sort of the office. And uh, the words, what these words, these different words end up with different kinds of church government with behind them. The elder is presbyteros. So what does that tell us? Presbyterians. They, they will identify elders with Presbyterian government. Well, we have elders and we're not Presbyterians, but that's sort of a generalization. If we talk about pastors, of course, that's the Baptist way, right? Baptists and deacons, and we'll look at that uh, in Philippians in a second. But the pastoring, the feeding, the teaching, that's not any, uh, any connotation of governing, uh, and then the oversight, the overseers, the ones exercising oversight, uh, the, the root word would be episkopos, episcopalian, kind of a government that has a, one particular overseer over a number of churches, maybe. Uh, so that's not, that's general but that's where we get the Episcopalians, that's where we get the Presbyterians, the Presbyterian-type government from these different words. Um, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And then that's the 1 Timothy 3 that gives the, the uh, qualifications for an elder. 
but it's the office of overseer. Uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 5, and then verse 7. This is what Paul's writing to Titus. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remains into order and appoint elders in every town. And then as he gives the qualifications, he says, for an oversight seer as God's steward must be above reproach in the and he, and he has the uh, qualifications there. So as elder and overseer, Titus, uh, Paul ties them together in his, word to, in his uh, message to Titus. In Acts chapter 20, as Paul is going to Jerusalem after the third missionary journey, he uh, is trying to hurry back to Jerusalem to meet one of the feasts, one of the festivals. And so he, he, he sails past Ephesus, he stops at the port of Miletus and calls the elders of Ephesus to come see him there because he doesn't want to get tied up with the people in the church there where he spent so much time. And he uh, calls the elders of the church to come to him. And then as he admonishes them and, and encourages them where he, he's on the beach with them, he tells them, look, we're not going to see each other again. And there's many tears shed. But he encourages them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to pastor or to care for them. That's the word pastor, to shepherd the church of God which he obtained in his own blood. And so he's talking to the elders. He says, God has, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers and your responsibility is to pastor them. And that's when he tells them, I'm not going to see you again. I'm going to uh, Jerusalem. I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but the Holy Spirit tells me hard times are coming when I go to Jerusalem. So those just how we tie, how we tie these three together because many churches will separate them. There's discussion. What's a pastor and what's an elder and then what is an overseer or a bishop? You know, and many denominations have bishops here. It, it seems like, we can't say for sure, seems like more an Episcopal type of church government was initially set up in the first century. Almost Paul's a bishop over all the churches he plants. He's not exactly because he's an evangelist. Uh, but it seems sort of that way. And then Paul begins to teach, and finally in the pastorals, he seems to lay out a little bit of a local church government, more so than this Episcopal-type government, uh, where we have, well, Titus is over the churches in Crete. He leaves him there. But he has them, him to point elders, plural, in every church on the island of Crete. So... Any questions, any comments, anything, Corey, any, Bruce, anything y'all want to add to, to the eldership that we, we good? Okay. Chapter five, I've, uh, it just seems to be the sense of humility in Peter. Peter has learned a lot from what we know about him and his, when Jesus was here in the ministry. And so what strikes me here is Peter does not, he doesn't use his office as an apostle to teach these uh, people. He calls himself a fellow elder. 
He puts them on the level of, of them. We're, we're in equal footing. And he says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. Now here he mentions a witness of the sufferings of Christ. So Peter uh, did see the sufferings of Christ. He witnessed the sufferings of Christ firsthand. Uh, he was an apostle. And then a partaker of the glory that is about to be revealed or the glory that is going to be revealed. Um, so that's sort of his bio. He's, a, he's an elder. He's a fellow elder. He's a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He's a partaker of the future glory. And then his example uh, uh, that he calls himself a fellow elder. So here's our example. Here is these, uh, these who are dispersed over into Asia, Galatia and Asia, in those areas that he's writing to, and he calls them to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, pastor the flock that is among you, tend the flock. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, he gave some as apostles, prophets, evangelists, the pastor, teacher, pastor and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So there's four offices that he gave to the church. Uh, apostles. Do we have any more? Well, the church down the street has a name. Yeah. Um, the, the one requirement that makes apostleship void is eyewitness, right? At least from Acts chapter 1, when they went to replace Judas... Uh, one of the requirements was he was with us. He was an eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ, of the ministry of Christ. Um, no uh, apostles. Prophets. The office of prophet. No. The spiritual gift of prophecy. Yes. Just a foretelling of the word of God. There's no, no uh, prophecy given from God that's going to be fulfilled in the future uh, new revelation in the office of prophet. But then there's evangelists. Um, not sure exactly how he is using, how Paul is using evangelists. Uh, here he tells Timothy, as the pastor in the church in Ephesus, as one of his fellow workers in the spreading of the gospel, he tells Timothy to do the work of an evangelist which we're all called to do, I would uh, tend to lean toward evangelist in the first century being exactly what Paul did, sort of a church planter. Paul's not pastoring any churches. He plants churches, he gets the church going, and then he goes on. Uh, Itinerant-type ministry. Not what we modern-day, my modern-day Bob. Baptist experience of evangelists, which is itinerant ministry, but they just go around. The, usually a, a, an evangelist is a parachurch kind of a ministry that's not tied particularly. He may be a member of a church, but it's a ministry that is on the side of the church and goes about to different churches preaching the gospel in evangelistic uh, type settings. Not as popular as it was 30 years ago, maybe. Uh, certainly not as popular as in the 70s and 80s. But yet, uh, the evangelistic 
I don't know if it's an office anymore, but there are evangelists. And we're all called to do the work of an evangelist. And then the pastor-teacher, we see that as tied together in one position, one office, pastor-teachers. All elders, all pastors, all overseers are to be apt to teach. Now, it doesn't mean... That doesn't mean that every elder must be able to stand up and teach a large group of people. But they must be able to teach the faith, to defend the faith, to help the flock of God know where we are as a church, what we believe, and why we believe it. Some will teach more than others. Uh, of course, you go to the Presbyterians, and they have two kinds of elders, ruling elders, the elders who rule well, and then teaching elders. And Corey and I were talking this week, uh, just uh, the other day, about how surely some of that f- crosses over. Uh, and And it's not that ruling elders never teach and teaching elders never administrate. But they'll have these different kind, two different offices of, or two different elders, uh, titles for their elders, and I'm not sure exactly how they all function. Anybody help me with that? Corey? Okay. Teaching elders are also ruling elders, but ruling elders are not necessarily teaching elders, but surely they disciple and counsel one on one. There you go. Uh, we don't see that division between ruling and teaching. Elders rule, elders teach. Uh, but again, in varying degrees, uh, it's a yes. Anybody else? Okay. Uh, so, uh, we're at verse 4. Well, yeah, let's, yes, sir. When Paul calls himself an elder, is he speaking to the specific office, even though he doesn't have a particular church body that he's an elder of, or do you think that's more of a general, he's a, a shepherd of, of people? I, yes. You know, uh, yeah, I would say so. You know, Peter here is an apostle and an elder. Uh, I think we probably make some lines they haven't made drawn yet uh, in the first century. Uh, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, verse 2, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, or according to God, God's way, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So willingly and eagerly, not dutifully, delightfully, Serving delightfully. Uh, Jesus 
John chapter 10, this reason the Father loves me, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. And I've received this charge from my Father, he says. But he is willingly, voluntarily has taken this on uh, as our example. Uh, Here's, here's uh, uh, Matthew chapter 28, verse 31. I think it's on your list. Um, I, I've, my point in the outline here is humbly leading by example. Uh, Matthew 26, did I say 28? 26, 31. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. In application, the devastation on congregations that lose their shepherd for various reasons. Uh, Again, a, a congregation I was very close to 40 years later 30 years later, is not over it yet. Hebrews 13 tells the leadership that um, they will give an account. This is so very important. The leadership affects the congregation so much. And I know this is Jesus saying, I'm going to strike. The, but the shepherd is struck, and what happens to the Congregation to the disciples, the apostles, but they all forsake him and and flee. Uh, and so I think we can legitimately think of it that way: the importance of church leadership. Now, shame—that's no excuse for a congregation to fall apart. That's no excuse for these apostles to flee. He had told them it was going to happen. But the impact of the moment, the situation that comes up. So humbly leading by example is so very important. Uh, in fact, in Jude, that Jude 1.12, these are blemishes on your love feast, these false teachers as they feast with you without fear, looking after themselves. That's the word shepherding. They're pastoring themselves. And so Jude goes on and says, They are waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in the autumn, in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. They're shepherding themselves and not the flock of God. And so they are deemed to be heretical deemed to be terribly harmful to God's kingdom. And then verse 4, any, uh, just stop me if you want, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. No elder, no pastor is in charge. We answer to the chief shepherd. All leadership answers to the chief shepherd. 1 Peter 2.25, you were straying like sheep, 
but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. Jesus is the shepherd and the overseer. And when we come to Christ, we become part of the flock. Then in this local situation here, um, the local situation, Christ is the head of the church. The chief shepherd, when he appears, these leadership, these leaders who are faithful will receive an unfading crown of glory. I'm not sure what that means exactly. I'll let you figure out the different crowns. Uh, it's God's grace. Whatever we get at the end, it's God's grace. Whatever anybody gets. And we all have some sort of crowns. Um, uh, it does matter how we live, right? And it does matter um, whatever the reward system is that I personally have a hard time understanding. You know, John says, "Don't make sure you don't lose your reward. Um, we know that doesn't mean you can lose your salvation, but there are rewards that are handed out at the second coming of Christ when he returns, and they'll just be uh, apparently abilities to cast at the feet of Jesus in worship, to return to Christ in, in gratitude and worship. Uh, but anyway, there's this promise right here from the chief shepherd. When he appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. When you uh, exercise oversight, when you shepherd the flock of God as God would have you, so there's some reward to faithfulness. Looking to and motivated by that uh, future glory, that unfading crown of glory, the reward for those who feed the sheep, execute the office according to the word of God. Then the rest of the chapter, as he's talking about serving and are leading in humility, he's he lays out a series of commands, a series of encouragements, a series of charges that I just noted as humility in action. This is, here is humility in action. Verse 6, humble yourselves. Well, verse 5, likewise you who are younger be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time you, he may exalt you. I can't be sure. seems to me he moves from the office of elder in verse 5 to a more either age-wise or maturity-wise use of the word elder in a more general term. Maybe that's not right, but it seems to me what he does here now is he says, you who are younger be subject to the elders. He does say the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. And so there's this call here for humility and uh, humbling ourselves at least to the older, more mature folks for these younger men, and maybe it's to the 
elders themselves. Uh, but he says, clothe yourself with humility. Um, makes me think of our, our, uh, our clothing, uh, our righteousness is nothing but filthy rags. And uh, are, uh, would you dare stand before God in your own righteousness? So many think that they can. Well, he says here, and then clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. The redeemed are clothed by the, clothed by the righteousness of Christ. You remember the first act of redemption? What was the first act of redemption? Where God seeks out Abraham, Adam and Eve, and he clothes them with the skins of the animals. Uh, they're guilty. They fled. Uh, they hide from God because they're naked in their guilt. They're ashamed. And so God, in one sense, redeems them, foreshadowing, of course, uh, Christ's sacrifice on our behalf and provides them with new clothes, with covering. And so we're to clothe ourselves with all humility toward one another. Why? Because God opposes the proud. He opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Uh, so the younger are to humble themselves, to learn from the older, from the leaders, from the more mature, those whose life experiences should make them wiser, and he calls them to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God, submitting to the Lord as Lord, acknowledging his right, acknowledging his authority over our lives. And when we do so, he will exalt us in due time. Those who are humble. Humble are given grace. When we approach God in this spirit of humility, he adds grace. To our grace, grace upon grace, in contrast, the proud will face the resistance of God, the opposition of God, and who can stand if God is to oppose us. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Again, Christ our example Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Uh, uh, this table right here will probably remember. This table right here might remember. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. You remember that song? James remembers it. There's no other friend so kind as he. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cared for me. Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. Now take your responsibilities serious. 
and then things you're concerned about but not responsible for, give them to, give them over to God. How you learn? <laughs> Find the illustrations in all kinds of places. Mark Twain says, "I'm an old man. I have known a great many troubles, and most of them never happened." All right. And that what Jesus, I mean, Jesus taught us that principle. Mark Twain learned it from the Bible, I'm sure. But he told, what good is it to worry? What good is it? We have responsibilities that we need to be concerned about and we need to fulfill. We need to take those responsibilities on. We need to take them seriously. And with God's help, fulfill them. Too often we try to uh, take on things that aren't really our responsibility. Cast your care on him because, the next verse, be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking him, someone to devour, resist him, firm in your faith. So cast your care on him because he cares for you. Cast your care on him because the adversary is, is prowling. And he says, sober up. It's a very word for drunkenness. But surely this is, I think, our ESV says sober-spirited, right? Be sober-minded. Be watchful. He says, sober up. Watch out there. Uh, the deceiver is lurking. He's on the prowl. He's seeking to swallow you up. And if you're not wary of his wiles, of his traps, of his schemes that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6, you'll fall into his hands because you minimize the chances he'll bother you. you. Need to know. We need to know about him. We need to know him. Uh, according to the word, we need a sober and vigilant understanding of Satan. You know, some underestimate him and others find a demon behind every bush. You know, the demon of this and the demon of that. But we need a sober-minded, vigilant, alert understanding of the nature of Satan. Peter says this because Peter knows there was a time when Peter was not watchful and was not sober-minded. Right? Jesus says, uh, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you. Uh, and Peter didn't listen to any more. Because Jesus said, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, And when you have returned to me, when you have returned to me, strengthen the brethren. He told him right there, he, say, Satan was going to sift him and he was going to fail. But his faith wouldn't fail. And when you return, Strengthen the brethren, which is exactly what Jesus does with him in John 20, right? Uh, on the sea, by the sea, where he restores him three times after he denies the Lord three times. 
But somewhere in this place, Peter says, if I die, even if I have to die, I will not deny you. Listen, on our own, we are outmatched by Satan and his evil emissaries. We don't stand a chance on our own. And and what happened to the disciples when Peter said, I'll die for you? All the disciples said the same thing. We'll never deny you. Never will we deny you. They followed their leader. And they dispersed and they fled. They denied him. Peter's the only one who said it. The rest of them did it with their feet. Resist him, he says, Peter says, resist Satan, firm in your faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Don't resist him in anything in yourself, in your strength, in your knowledge, in your understanding, in your supposed maturity in Christ. We we need to know we're overmatched. And and. We have the whole armor of God. Resist the devil, James says, and he will flee from you. But he says, first, submit yourself to God. And then resist the devil. And here Peter says, firm in your faith, rooted in the truths of God's word, rooted in what it is that we believe, the doctrines of the faith, students of God's word. And then... We resist submitting to God, rooted in the word, and then I've added knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by others. There's no temptation that comes upon you that's not common to man. It's what Paul writes to the Corinthians. We're all facing temptations. Our problems are not unique. We're not alone in our trials. He He said in chapter 4, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon you as though some strange thing was happening. You know, for us, we don't face many fiery trials. We face temptations every day. And some of us face harsher trials than others. There are hard trials in this life, even in a land where we live somewhat free, able to practice our faith. Not, not so here, and Peter's reminding them. These folks are, share, uh, are suffering. You know, throughout what we've found, seen throughout Peter is in underlying every passage is this idea of suffering of Christians. They become unpopular. Nero is, is the emperor Christians have become unpopular. They're refusing to participate in the culture, in the idolatry, in the immorality. Uh, they, they call sinners to salvation. Uh, and they were viewed with suspicion, with hostility, all kinds of things. They were criticized 
mocked, surely arrested on false charges. That, uh, we know Paul's life, his whole ministry was um, chased uh, here and there, everywhere he went. James writes to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. Hebrew author, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, property since you know you have better possessions. And that, so Peter's just reminding them, look, life is hard for you, but resist the devil. Resist him, verse 9, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his external glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Submit to the elders, submit to one another humbly, and now he calls for submission to God. And the submission to God will bring about, the suffering will just be for a little while. I know in the midst of it, sometimes it seems like a long time. But suffering just for a little while, Paul's light momentary affliction, and he suffered a lot. But after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Um, I just kind of wrote there, kind of already, but not yet. We already... Enjoy eternal life and the glory, but not yet. That's a future glory for us. But in the present, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So Peter's just pleading to them, to look to God for their settling, firm, and secure life. What did uh, Augustine's prayer that made everybody so mad, you know, our hearts are restless till we find our rest in thee, and until we rest in God, we'll never experience this settling, this uh, uh, restoration and confirmation and strengthening and establishment of our life. Uh, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's a benediction, his praise to God. Uh, I, think, uh, I think Sproul at the end of this uh, section here says, Peter heard the Sermon on the Mount, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And he closes with this, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then, Peter's goodbyes, by Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Most likely this is Silas, who was with Paul on his second journey, who is now with Peter in Rome, probably the secretary uh, who Peter dictated the letter to, and, most li- and I guess most likely uh, delivers the letter all the way across uh, the empire to the eastern side to these 
who are dispersed. She is who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen. I don't know if you remember First uh, Peter one one to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia. So all these who are over in the eastern end of where the gospel has gone, Galatia, where Paul started out on his first missionary journey, what Peter does here is now in the western side of this uh, gospel spread, Paul says, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Um, I I read that... uh, uh, one said, this is Peter's wife. I think it's more likely the church in Rome, with Babylon being a reference, a symbol for Rome. And so he's saying, the church at Rome sends greetings to you. They're chosen also, just as you're elect exiles, they're chosen also, they're elect of God. And so does Mark, my son. Every time I read this, every time I read Second Timothy, my heart is, uh, is overjoyed because Mark failed so badly, according to Paul, or at least in Paul's uh, mind. I, I just, I, I do. I love to see Mark at the end uh, of at least the end of uh, these epistles. In 2 Timothy 4, this is Paul's very end. Luke alone is with me, writing to Timothy. Greet Mark and bring him with you. He is very useful to me for ministry. On that first journey, you remember, they, they didn't no more hit the coast after they sailed across the Mediterranean than Mark went, goes home. And so in one sense, he failed as a missionary, uh, but he found his vocation. He found his ministry. And Paul says, uh, he's useful to me. Peter says he's marked my son, not, probably not his biological son, but a relative. And he, is, uh, he, he found his ministry. He wrote the gospel. Uh, most likely collaborating with Peter. Most likely Peter uh, told him, gave him some background, and maybe even during this time right here while Peter is writing. We don't know. And then he just closes with verse 14. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peace and love to all who are in Christ. The Lord bless you and keep you. That's First Peter. Anything? Father, we thank you for these dear words, your words to us by proxy or down the way as you have inspired Peter to write to a group of people in the first century words that are living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword that pierce our souls these 2,000 years later. Lord, we understand that having your whole word, the complete revelation, you expect more of us. Help us to fulfill the call, the call that grace has demanded of us. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.